again, uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 31 is where we're starting. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. All right, and then Mark chapter 8, 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. This is God's word. Uh, pastor I sat under years ago, he shared with me this sort of progressive approach to, to reading any passage of the Bible. And at first he said that the first thing you want to do is to approach the Bible as a window. So for example, I'll come over here. Every part of Scripture is a window into another world, right? And so when you, you look through that window into the other world, you see the, the author and the audience's world, their worldview, what they're going through. And so our job when we first approach the Bible is to simply sit back, look through the window, and observe and take notes, like, like a, a field reporter in nature. Just observe. Next, you want to then start to approach the Bible after just observing, approach the Bible as if it's a painting. And a painting, every passage, every, every is, is crafted with equal parts style and purpose. And our role in examining a, a painting, say like this, this stained glass back here, a work of art, you want to trace the, the connections between the patterns in the work and the contrasts in the work and in looking at the patterns and the contrasts and what's coming out from it, what is the author trying to say through what we read? And having approached the Bible then as a painting and, and, and noting these connections and these patterns, then approach the Bible as a mirror. Every passage means to draw you and me into God's story. And then, having drawn us into God's story, it means to, to reflect back to us, as with this mirror, who we truly are in relationship to God's story. And so, which one of these, a window, a painting, a mirror, do we usually resist when reading the Bible? Yeah, the mirror, right? The mirror, because the mirror shows us what our life really looks like, right? 
What's wrong with it? Uh, What's lacking in it? Think about it, though. If there's no wrong and there's no lack, then there's no Savior. Right? If if you nothing wrong with you, you don't lack anything, you don't have any need for saving. You can only see Jesus clearly if you can see yourself clearly. And for that, we need a mirror. Jesus' 12 teammates called apostles, which is a fancy word that means sent ones or, or messengers. They find themselves written into God's story with the living word of God, Jesus Christ. And in these two accounts that Maureen read for us this morning, he is holding up to them a mirror to see themselves clearly. Now, mirrors in our lives are always nearer than we think, right? They're they're used in uh, rooms we want to feel bigger. They're used inside our vehicles, right outside our vehicles. They're used in hallways and in restrooms. Things that aren't mirrors now serve as mirrors, like your smartphone, right? And you put it in the selfie mode, and you use it to check to make sure you got your makeup on right, your hair's looking all right, all that sort of thing, right? You get, then we have spoons and knives and stainless steel appliances, which in movies, the good guys and, good, and the good ladies can, can see their, their killer around the corner, right? And they look at that, and they say, yeah, yeah, they come, right? And they save themselves by a mirror. But back to real life, we can't forget about the storefront mirrored window check, right? When you just got to, you're walking along the street and you just steal a glance, right? Steal a glance, right? Not too long. You don't want to see anyone looking at you. My wife and I, we were just this past weekend in the city of Austin, Texas, and we didn't rent a car while we were there. We walked everywhere. And so almost every building has these mirrored windows, Right? And because I knew this sermon was coming up and I was thinking about this already, I was kind of watching people for it. And I was struck how often people, even in mid-conversation, they'll be talking to someone and they'll just, they'll just look along, just, just unafraid, unabashed. They don't even care, no shame at all, checking themselves in the mirror right, to make sure, I don't know, to instill confidence or to alert themselves, man, you got to find a, a bathroom quickly right, <laughs> and fix what's wrong. Well, through these two miracles we read about this morning, Jesus is holding up a mirror to the apostles, to his friends. And they might see from themselves, oh, I am like this deaf and stuttering man. Or I am like this blind man. And I can't just go find a bathroom and fix it. But I need to see the reality of who I am. Now, I'm saying, as I'm saying this, I recognize I need to let you know I'm not symbolically trying to explain away the personal healing of these two men. I believe healing can and does exist today just as it took place back then. First, as we see here in the Decapolis and then further north in in Bethsaida. And Jesus cares deeply about these two men. He's not simply trying to teach the apostles a lesson. But he is doing that also. Um, So did anyone here have a surprisingly good experience with the pandemic we just had? Like, just be honest, okay, so a few of you are, I know it's hard to even raise your hand, you're raising it sheepishly, and I understand why, because you know how awkward that is to say to other people. You don't want to imply that the main thing is that I benefited from the pandemic, while others lost lives, lost loved ones, isolation, experienced, right, long-term physical or mental illnesses from it. 
but you, write, but you, you know in the back of your mind and from your experience, there's this, this, this offshoot of that time period where I did experience this silver lining, this good thing. That something like that is happening here. For these two men, the main thing is that they're healed. Each is healed. One gets to see for the first time. One gets to hear for the first time. And that is wonderful. And yet God works multiple purposes often through the same action. And this truth is absolutely essential if we're going to grasp what Jesus is doing through these two events. Uh, a, A pastor much older and wiser than me, a man named John Piper, once put it well. He said, God is never doing just one thing in what he does. He's never just doing one thing in what he does. He is doing thousands of things we cannot see. He never has only one purpose in what he does. And so in the same way here, Jesus restores hearing and sight while communicating through those things a deeper truth to his 12 closest friends. Let me give you a few reasons why these two miracles serve as a kind of mirror, a mirror, all right, to the apostles. A mirror to the apostles. Since the beginning of Mark chapter 6, Jesus sends his, the 12 out in pairs to help people and to speed the good news message. And what's interesting is Jesus has been simultaneously preparing his teammates, the apostles, to be messengers, even as they still try to grasp the message. Imagine that. I know you don't quite get the message yet. I'm going to send you out anyway to share it with others. And so for the last four weeks in the Gospel of Mark, we've been focused on the, the, the closest people to Jesus. His messengers still need to personally get the message that he's given. He needs, they need to get him. And so we saw weeks, about four weeks ago, that he passed by on the sea to show them who he really was. But their hearts were hardened to recognize that he is the one. He is the Christ. And so our message in a nutshell that week was that church-going, Christian-speaking, good-deed-doing does not necessarily mean that you get Jesus, that you see him for who he is. But they're tempted to think that. They're tempted to think that because they're close to Jesus, they've arrived. They're just like the the well-respected insider of the day, the religious insiders, the Pharisees. And so what Jesus does is he gets them outside the borders of religion. He gets them outside of the borders of Judaism to the north, to the places where there's pretty much no Jews, to help them see that anyone who responds with humble trust to himself will be welcomed in the kingdom of God. Not just the religious-sounding people, not just the people who are born Jews. In our stories... Jesus privately removes both of these men from the crowds, and it's just him and them. And who else? The apostles, right? That's how we know these things happen. They recorded them for us. Then the otherwise, we get these otherwise bizarre detail of a gradual healing. Normally when Jesus heals someone, he just heals them right away, right? He just raises someone from the dead. He can do it. But for whatever reason, he doesn't here. And so we read in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 8, He asked the man, do you see anything after laying hands on him? And the man looks up at him and said, well, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Something out of the Lord of the Rings, which I love, by the way. But I wonder if that's where the inspiration came from. But he sees these trees walking. And you probably wonder, why does Jesus only partially heal this man? Well, it makes sense only if you understand that Jesus is trying to help the apostles see themselves. 
See their own situation. They suck with Jesus and he with them. And they're almost there, but they don't quite see him clearly yet. They don't quite get him yet. Just like this man doesn't quite see clearly yet, they don't quite see Jesus clearly yet. And they need to respond to Jesus just like this blind man responded to Jesus, to Jesus' question. He responded honestly, right? I, I see, but I don't really, I don't quite get it yet, Jesus. But they're not there yet. So Jesus questions in between these healings, questions them in a way that mirrors these two episodes. Look at this, if you will, in your Bibles. We didn't read this this morning, but look at it with me. Chapter 8, verse 16. They began discussing with another the fact that they had no bread. We'll talk about what that means more next week. Jesus, aware of this, says to them, why are you discussing this? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you see the connection to our passage? Having eyes, don't you see yet? Having ears, don't you hear yet? And these two miracles, Jesus is saying, look, you need eyes. You need ears to see because you don't yet. After these two healings, they finally get it. They finally get it. They finally rightly see Jesus, hear Jesus, and speak for Jesus. Look at chapter 8, verses 27 through 29. Jesus went on his, on his way with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? They told him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. He asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And from that moment, everything changes for the, for the disciples, for the apostles. They, Jesus finally gets their attention and gets them to see the reality of their need for him. They, they can see themselves clearly in their need for a savior. You see the progression here? You see what's going on then with these miracles? Oh, you should see yourself. This is a mirror for me to see who I am. I'm the blind man. I'm the deaf man. So in a nutshell this morning, this is our message. If you remember nothing else, remember this, that God speaks and acts as a mirror so that I'll see myself clearly. God speaks and acts as a mirror so that I can see myself clearly. And you're here this morning, which is evidence that God is at work in your life. Whomever you are, at whatever state you're coming here this morning, you're here, and there's a reason for that. God is putting up a mirror to your life and trying to say, don't you see what you're doing? Or don't you see what you're still missing in your life? Sometimes this mirror comes in the form of God's word. Sometimes it comes in the form of another person, specifically the church. Sometimes it's through circumstances. Often when all three come together and it's powerful, we see ourselves even more clearly. So my question for you is, what is your mirror? What is that mirror for you this morning? Let me share with you a little from my own life. For years, I struggled with just a fierce independence to do things my way on my terms. In fact, my way on my terms was probably my subconscious mantra <laughs> for many years and through my 20s. But what God was doing is he, was, he started to unveil his plan to sort of rip that selfishness away from me. The first plan was marriage. <laughs> marriage starts to do that to you. Then, then the next plan was children. Children rips that selfishness even more away from you. And, but I was holding on to a few threads still, and so God said, serve the church. Well, years later, I was still serving. I'm given uh, three talks or teachings a week, at night, 
and I'm accepting invitations for speaking to this thing or that thing. I'm in my 20s. I'm doing this. It seems to be going great. Meanwhile, my wife Katie is struggling from postpartum depression after having Gad Gage. But I was so driven to define myself by success the way the world sees success and the way the world defines it. So she, I remember times she would plead with me sometimes to just stay home that day. Please stay home. And I would, I would wrestle with, but I would say, ah, you know, I really, I can't. I've got to go. And I walked right out that door. I was blind to the reality that I was putting my own needs first. Thinly disguised as serving others, sure. But they were really my own needs and things would get worse. Finally, I reached out to a pastor friend of mine for help. And he sat me down and he said, Ryan, you need to change. It's not about you anymore. As if it ever was. <laughs> it was humbling to hear that. Humbling. It was a mirror in my life. I confessed my sin to God. I slowly began to change some of my habits at home, and I was beginning to make progress in my life. But just to send in reinforcements, God did that as well. He sent along another mirror, an elder in our church named John Stewart, not that John Stewart above right here, who's a funny guy, but maybe not, maybe not elder material. And he spoke into my life. And at one, because at one point I was up for this position in our church, and in term, he told me, Ryan, in terms of gifts and ability, you're really high up on that list. But in terms of servanthood, you're pretty low. Whoa. Hard to hear. But I needed to hear it. The Holy Spirit, friends, uses people and encounters with them as sometimes as a kind of mirror. Now, people in, in, in good churches where most people know that they're messed up and need Jesus, uh, they don't want to speak up about something hard unless they're compelled to do so. So when they do so, when someone says something hard to you in a church, I think like this one, consider they might be holding up a mirror for you. They might be holding up a mirror. So your mirror might be a person. It also might be the Bible, like stuff we read this morning. That's why it's important to read this, this every day whether it's here on your phone or whatever, to read it every day in the same way you eat every day. It's that important. So right now, for example, I'm feeling pretty blessed. I get to know and be loved by Jesus, who's called me to help care for this amazing church here. I get, get to live in Petaluma. I get to be married to Katie Oschlager. I get uh, to be a, a dad to Mason and Gage. And so I, I'm very proud, maybe a little too proud, a little too proud. So on the morning that I'm praying, I'm thinking, and I'm preparing to, and I'm finishing this, this sermon, I read that morning, my daily Bible plan, a story about a king who's the most powerful man on the planet at this time. And this king has a dream. King has a dream. And someone who, who knows and loves God tells this man what the dream means. And the way he holds up a kind of mirror to him. He's going to go from being on top of the world to having a crippling mental illness. I mean, crippling, like embarrassing, out in a field, mental illness. Later, after God restores him, so, he, so this happens to him. And later, after God restores him, he tells his entire kingdom, people like me who walk in pride, the God of Israel 
this God is able to humble. So I'm reading it this morning. I'm thinking, oh, this is a mirror for me. I need to hear this and humble myself. So what is your mirror? Friends, what is your mirror? And when he shows that to you, I want to encourage you, respond. Respond to whatever God reveals. Even if it's hard at first, respond. How do we do that? Let me give you a couple suggestions. First, assume the mirror is for you and not for others. Assume the mirror is for you and not for someone else. You cannot force someone else to look in the mirror and change. All right? Michael Jackson thought it well by the man in the mirror. Anyone know that song? Remember that one? All right? Michael Jackson did a lot of wrong things. (laughs) But that was a good good song. Not... (laughs) I'm going to move on. Not even the Son of God forces other people to look in the mirror. He doesn't even force his closest friends to see him for who he is and respond accordingly. He sends them out on a mission to help them feel their need. He he takes them to desolate places to recognize their hunger. He walks with them on water to show that they're not alone. He asks them questions like the one we read earlier. Do you not perceive or understand or your heart's hardened? Having eyes don't you see yet? Having ears do you hear yet? So he asks them questions. But they got to be the ones to choose to respond. They got to be the ones to see themselves and say, you know what, Jesus? I need you. They got to be like the blind man we see in our story. So when Jesus asks, he responds and says, Jesus, I don't see yet clearly. I'm not there. He humbles himself. Now, he could walk away with cataracts, right, with 90-20 vision instead of 20-20. That's up to him. Or he could be authentic and honest. Those of you with married kids, those of you who have kids, right, are still in the house, I know that your child did something recently that is a mirror image of what your spouse does. It happens all the time, right? We look at it and say, oh, yeah, I know where that comes from, right? Well, guess what? They mirror your life also, for any of you, those of you out there who, who've joked or thought, my job is to keep them grounded. My job is to keep them humble. Let me just encourage you, stop. It's one of the worst things to say. No one's full-time relational job is to be a mirror for others. So whether it's a spouse or a friend, your relational job description in the New Testament is way more on the side of encouragement, love, honor, patience. Only hold up a mirror when they ask you for advice, when they ask for feedback. Or, or in extreme cases, when God is just putting something on your heart, you got to share. So assume, first of all, the mirror is for you. Also, how to respond when God shows you what your mirror is, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Right? The first look in any mirror is never flattering. Notice the judgment of the crowd, by the way, in chapter 7, verse 37. They say of Jesus, oh, he has done all things well. Very similar to a moment in Mark chapter 12 where Jesus gives his greatest commandments and the inquiring man judges, oh, Jesus, you are right, teacher. You have rightly love your neighbor. Neither the crowd here nor the scribe in chapter 12, though, seems to have their eyes opened, their ears opened to see and to hear. Don't leave here this morning as a judge. When evaluating Jesus, you may start out in a position to judge, but you cannot stay there and go with him. Submit to his loving evaluation. Humble yourself and ask for help for the next steps in your life. Just as the apostle should have responded like the blind man, we don't fully see actually yet for who you are. We don't see you for who you are. 
John Wesley, along with George Whitfield, founded the Methodist movement, and later what would become the Wesleyan Church. This was back in the late 18th century. This church was defined in England and America by a passion to reach the lost, especially the poor and marginalized. But this all began for, for John Wesley on a ship going to America in 1735. He was asked to become a missionary to the state of Georgia, the colony of Georgia. He'd hoped to, quote, save the heathen from a fearful death. He was still on board January of the next year. And during a storm so fierce that it broke every window in the main cabin and went on for eight days, just that everyone on board was screaming, was just wailing and screaming, and eight days of this, fearing for their life. Well, down beneath the cabin, Wesley heard some other voices. There were some people singing. So he went down beneath and found it was these Moravians, these German Christians who were singing the Psalms of the Old Testament. He asked them, hey, do you guys not fear the storm? And they said they did not, that they trusted Christ in life and death. Well, in this moment, Wesley's eyes and ears were open to a mirror God was holding up in his life. He'd come to save the heathen from fear, and he was that heathen. That's what he realized. He humbled himself, he asked for them for help, and he learned about salvation by faith from the Moravians. Because just because just you're in church doesn't mean you don't need a mirror. Humble yourself. We haven't even gotten to the most curious detail of the two episodes that these two episodes share in common. As Maureen read from these two events, what similar details stood out in both? It was Jesus' touch, wasn't it? Jesus' tactile approach. Jesus usually heals, heals with a word or from afar. Why then get touchy-feely here? Some people said just to give a personal touch. Some commentators speculate because Jews considered the spittle of certain people to contain healing powers, and Jesus is the chief healer. Others, commentators say that Jesus is contrasting himself to the Greek or Hellenistic use of various healing balms. Jesus is saying, it's me, not your essential oils that can really help your life, all right? I think it's much simpler than that, though it's easy to mess at first. If a blind man's going to get what Jesus is doing, a blind man who can't see is going to get what Jesus is doing, Jesus got to appeal to him through senses other than sight, right? Notice how Jesus deals with the blind man. He spits on his eyes, he touches him, and he speaks. If a deaf man is going to get what Jesus is doing, but also who's doing it, Jesus got to appeal to senses other than hearing, right? So what does he do? He puts his fingers in his ears, so the man can acknowledge the reality of his situation, mirroring his condition. He touches his tongue to show the man what he, King Jesus, is going to do in his life. And then he looks up to heaven to visibly show this man from where this power is about to come from. You see what he's doing? Jesus mirrors to each man the reality of both their need and his sufficiency through tailor-made avenues and ways they can notice. He meets each person on their level so I can see myself and my need for him clearly. So the blind man could feel his need. So the, so the deaf man could see his need. That's what he does with us. Jesus may speak to you about 
boundaries through the very people you keep trying to help and spend all your time with. He may speak to you about the need to shut up and listen through the music that you love to sing. He may speak to you about the the need to make peace with someone else by being outside and experiencing the peace of nature on a walk. He may humble you through your new intern or through the brattiest among all your grandkids. Jesus knows exactly what you need to hear and to see and how you need to hear and see it. He can and he will get through to you. Friends, is he doing that today? He's not going to force you, by the way. you got to step out, humble yourself, and admit that you need him. Do not fear the mirror that he's holding up. Don't fear it. If you can't look in the mirror and see yourself clearly, the flaws, the scars, the shortcomings, and the wrongs, you'll never see a Savior either. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would help us not fear the mirror you're holding up to our faces right now. In fact, let's take a few moments. We ask that you would speak to us What is that mirror for us? Let's take a few moments of silence. Please speak to us, Jesus. What is that mirror? About what are you trying to show us that we're missing out on? About what are you showing us that we need to change? Jesus, we trust that you are holding up this mirror Help us see ourselves for who we are so we might see you for who you really are, a savior, a helper, a mighty deliverer. It's in your name we pray. Amen.